For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. So what's it like to win a championship in a bubble? And when there's no Pac-12 football media day, what does the TreeCast do? Those answers coming up in just a few minutes on this episode of the TreeCast with Troy Clarity presented by the Believe Podcast Network. Glad you're with us. It is Wednesday, July 29th, 2020. Gosh, August is almost here. Is a college football season soon to follow? Hope so, but glad you're with us here on this episode of the show. I'm Troy Clarity, and happy to be bringing you a, a couple of different things on this week's episode. I think you're going to enjoy. We're going to catch up in just a few minutes with former Stanford women's soccer goalkeeper, Jane Campbell, who on Sunday hoisted the trophy along with the rest of the Houston Dash in the National Women's Soccer League as the winners of the NWSL's Challenge Cup Tournament. So one American Sports League has competed and completed its season in the bubble. What was it like? What was Jane's role in all of that? And what are some of her best memories of being on the farm? Looking forward to chatting with Jane Campbell about that in just a few minutes. And after that, we are going to have a Stanford football media roundtable in lieu of Pac-12 Media Day, which was, I mean, as as I say this, we'd probably be wrapping up lunch (laughs) during the Pac-12 football uh, media day uh, session and festivities if they were being normally held here on Wednesday, July the 29th, as uh, they were originally scheduled to be. As I say this, we'd probably be wrapping up with lunch. David Shaw might be sitting at the table, and I might have a tape recorder, and that might be the most unplugged that we see David Shaw all year long. It's one of my favorite moments of the year. Obviously, that won't happen. And then the Pac-12 canceled the uh, virtual portion of uh, media day's last week. So without that, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a Stanford football media roundtable with two guys who cover the Cardinal better than anybody else. Jacob Rayburn from CardinalSportsReport.com and Rivals.com and RJ Abadia from TheBootleg.com and 24-7 Sports. Looking forward to getting everyone's thoughts on what we know, what we think we know, and what we hope for Stanford football ahead. A couple of ground rules, of course. Follow me on Twitter at Troy Clarity. Last name is C-L-A-R-D-Y, at Troy Clarity. You've got thoughts on anything we cover, reaction uh, to the show, anything we talk about, or even some things we might not even talk about. you got thoughts on content? I'm all ears. Hashtag TreeCast. Hashtag TreeCast is the best way to ensure that I see your thoughts on anything that uh, you've got on Stanford Athletics and beyond. Don't forget to rate and review the show. And subscribe to the show no matter how you listen to the program. 
via Google po- Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. I think Alexa has the hookup. Uh, iHeartRadio also uh, syndicates this show as well. And of course, uh, don't forget uh, Believe.com, B-L-E-A-V.com. You can also go back in the vault and see previous episodes of the show uh, from that way. We've had some good interviews with uh, Senator Cory Booker, David Shaw, Jared Hess, Mark Madsen, Brevin Knight. Uh, Pat Forty from uh, from Sports Illustrated earlier this month, and looking forward to the interviews that we've got coming up later on on the show. All right, let's dive right into it. Here we go. We always begin the program by giving you three things you need to know around Stanford athletics. So that means we start off with number one. And I hate that we have to do this each week, but here we are. It is what it is, and, and these are the times that we're living in. Stanford Daily reporting that as of July twenty fourth. 11 Stanford football players have tested positive for COVID-19. Of those 11, five have recovered and have been cleared to resume activities. The other six were isolating. Stanford and all has conducted 505 tests. And obviously this will be an ongoing story as long as it takes for us to get rid of this thing. And, I'm, and I hope that it's a team effort for everyone involved. You need to wear a mask. Governments need to make the right decisions to make sure that everyone stays as healthy. As, as they possibly can. So this will obviously be, be an ongoing tracker that we're going to have to have for the foreseeable future. By the way, a quick note, um, Oregon State has done well so far. Zero positive tests for Oregon State football and USC football with zero positive tests in their latest round. USC has handled this whole thing very well, especially in transparency and just how they seem to have really dodged a lot of a lot of the of the really serious effects uh, from COVID-19 to this point. So kudos to this point for for USC for handling things. And maybe a, maybe one of the lessons there is that top-down leadership matters. Just saying. Let's get to number two. We've seen a handful of pro players opt out of playing their respective seasons. Buster Posey from the San Francisco Giants, of course, leading the way here headline-wise here in the Bay Area. Uh, New England Patriots have six guys opting out of uh, playing the upcoming season. Now, this could also happen on the collegiate level, level as well, which brings us to Stanford's Miles Hinton. He's an incoming freshman offensive tackle from Metro Atlanta. He's also a five-star, and he chose Stanford over Michigan, where his brother plays. His parents recently told the Chicago Tribune that they have concerns about the NCAA's approach to battling the pandemic, and that if they don't feel comfortable that it's safe for their sons to play, or at least reasonably safe anyway, their sons will not play this upcoming season. Now, you might recognize Miles Hinton's dad, Chris Hinton, former NFL All-Pro tackle who was drafted fourth overall by the Denver Broncos in the 1983 NFL Draft and then traded to the Baltimore Colts for some guy named John Elway. Miles' mom, Maya, played college hoops and is a former prosecutor. Now, those two, Chris and Maya, they've been de facto voices. They've emerged as kind of the, as kind of the voices of parents of college student-athletes who are also grappling with sending their kids into all of this. Chris Hinton says he has no issues with Stanford and how Stanford athletics and how the university has handled the pandemic so far, but he says that if they don't feel it's safe and if they don't feel the NCAA has their stuff together, Miles won't play. I'm not a parent and I just can't imagine what it's like being one right now, 
But I can't blame the Hintons. I can't blame them. Not one single bit. Let's finish it up with number three. And congratulations are in order to Michelle Zhao of Stanford Women's Soccer and Bailey Perez of Stanford Men's Gymnastics as they are recipients of Pac-12 postgraduate scholarships. Uh, Perez, team captain, All-American on the floor exercise. Zhao won the Pac-12 Scholar Athlete of the Year in 2018, and she scored 21 goals in her career. Zhao's also very heavily involved in medical research, and she has a paper published. That's pretty cool. I, I give you the title of, of, of that paper, but quite honestly, I, I can't pronounce it. One of the words is like 27 letters long. It's like, holy cow. But congrats to Michelle Zhao and congrats to Bailey Perez for landing Pac-12 postgraduate scholarships. That is awesome. And those are three things. Well, while the NBA and the NHL start up their bubble seasons, and while Major League Baseball restarts its season bubbleless and with some controversial results to this point, one American pro sports league has already competed and crowned a champion inside its own bubble in the middle of the pandemic. That champion is the Houston Dash, and the Dash led by a very familiar name to Stanford women's soccer fans, as she was three-time All-Pac-12, was the 2015 Pac-12 goalkeeper of the year, and one of the best in Cardinal history. And hey, now she's a pro champ as well. A pleasure to welcome into the TreeCast, Jane Campbell. Jane, thanks a bunch. Appreciate the time. How are you doing today? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Doing well, and happy to be here with you. Yeah, yeah. Looking forward to this chat. So many questions, so many things I'd like, I'd like to try to cover here with you. First off, we'll get to the circumstances and being in the bubble and all that stuff here in a little bit or so. But, but overall, on the pitch, what did it take for the Dash to win the whole thing? Yeah, I think it was definitely not an easy challenge for any team. Um, you know, we all had to in our own respective markets had to go through all the phase training when it came to individual training and then phasing into small group training and then phasing into team training. And then I think we had about maybe five or eight days of team training before we left for the bubble. So uh, it was quite interesting. It wasn't easy, but um, I have to give, you know, all the credit to one, the players for being so disciplined and um, being safe and healthy while we were in market. And then, uh, obviously give credit to James and our staff for um, being so, uh, I guess, strict with us about how we wanted to play and make sure that our game plan was always crystal clear each and every game, um, whether it was in group stages or elimination. So um, really it was a bunch of puzzle pieces came together and uh, thankfully all the puzzle pieces fit. Yeah, it's amazing how many things have to fit just right in order for a championship and a title to be won. And I think a lot of fans uh, seem to forget that. Maybe that's even more so the case now um, in this day and age. 2-0 final in the final over the Chicago Red Stars. Uh, you started all seven games of the tournament, four clean sheets along the way. What went right for you throughout the whole tournament? Yeah, I think uh, in all honesty, I don't think a lot went right in the beginning. Um, you know, we came in there against Utah with three to one lead and then we ended up losing it um, and lost the lead and tied that game three to three and then we had a great game against Seattle um, with a two nothing win I believe and then we lost two nothing to New Jersey and then one nothing to the spirit so definitely a um, little bit of ups and downs in the group stages but I think you know with such a unique way of the tournament being laid 
games and knowing everyone was advancing to the quarterfinals um, because unfortunately Orlando couldn't make it. I think the four games became then kind of like a trial and error run for everyone. Um, even though we all wanted to win all four games, um, I think we were able to mix up the lineups. We were able to try new game plans and see what worked and what didn't work. So by the time we got into the quarterfinals again against Utah, we knew exactly what we wanted to do. We knew exactly how we needed to execute our own game plan. So um, thankfully the quarters and the semis and the final, I thought the team did really, really well. And our game plan was really, really crystal, crystal clear. And um, everyone followed it almost a hundred percent. So um you know, ebbs and flows, and I think we all were expecting that coming into this unique, unique circumstance. And, um, you know, I think coming into the quarters, we were all just so ready that, you know, it didn't matter if it was elimination or another group game. We were just ready to compete. Yeah, take me back to when this all at least became on paper or a reality with the NWSL uh, going to Utah to, to take part um, in, in its bubble and compete um, in the bubble. Take me through your thought process when you first heard about this, when you first saw that, that this was going to be the plan and it was going to be reality. And, you know, were you full speed ahead, 100%, here we go. Were there any concerns, any misgivings? How are you kind of, what was kind of your thought process uh, going through this or going into this, I should say? Yeah, um, I think, I mean, I'll remember it clear as day. We were about to actually have our first team scrimmage, um, I think, on a Saturday morning. And, uh, you know, I think everyone needed to be at the facility by, you know, 10 a.m. or something. And I think at like 6 a.m. that morning, we all got a text saying, hey, don't report. Um, you've got to stay home because of COVID. So um, that Friday evening was our last training together until um, Corona kind of suspended us. So, uh, during the, I guess, suspension, it was definitely a weird, weird, challenging time. I mean, the first week I was kind of like, what am I even doing here? You know, are we even going to play this year? You know, why am I training? I didn't understand what I was really doing other than to stay, you know, quote unquote fit. And that's what, you know, unfortunately the, to the coaches could only tell us that was to stay fit, but we didn't really know what that meant. And so, you know, I think we went about a month maybe, and then we started hearing rumors about, oh, potentially there's going to be a bubble or potentially there'll be a couple games here and there. And we didn't really have anything concrete. So we all just kept training as in to quote unquote, stay fit, like the staff said. And sure enough, we got the big conference call that the Utah bubble was going to be the best and safest option for us. And so after the call, I think everybody was like, all right, let's all vote. How do we feel? And everyone on the dash, I mean, unless, you know, no one spoke up, we all were like, all right, you know, let's go play. We've, we've really got nothing to lose at this point. And, um, you know, all of us were kind of like, well, we'd rather play than not play at all. So um, once we found out about the bubble, it was like, all right, now do we, how do we get training? How do we get together? And of course, that's when we started phasing into training. And so going into the bubble, I think all of us were just like, well, we hope it works. Um, Surely, I'm sure the whole team had some doubts about the bubble. I myself was kind of like, how on earth are they going to keep us all safe and healthy? Um, how are they going to make sure that the bubble's intact the entire way? And, you know, when we got there, there's definitely, there were definitely some wrinkles, but um, nothing catastrophic where the bubble broke or where the tournament shut down. And I think that's a huge, huge credit to Lisa Baird and um, the whole Utah Royals organization for uh, hosting everybody and making sure everybody was safe and healthy and um you know prepared to play in the safest possible manner so um i thought it went really really smooth i really had no issues whatsoever in the bubble i mean the hotel got old but everything was really really <laughs> you know smooth sailing so um huge huge credit to the utah royals organization for doing that
Yeah, I, I can't imagine that. You know, I, I can spend like three or four days in a hotel, and after that, <laughs> I, I start to get a little stir crazy, even if it's like a, in Hawaii or something like that. I mean, right. Salt Lake's nice, but three to four weeks in the same hotel and you can't leave it in, in, in Salt Lake. I mean, exactly. Just, just take me through the mental challenge of that and having to go through it. Yeah, it was definitely hard. I mean, I um, mentally, I, I really, really struggled, especially during the group uh, stages and um, I wasn't playing well and then I didn't think I was training very well. So, but the, I think the worst part was you just couldn't really escape anything. You know, you were always around your team. You're always around your staff. Uh, I always felt like I had to, you know, put on my A game when sometimes I didn't want to, you know, maybe I wanted just an off day and I wanted to be able to have that. So mentally, I think that was the hardest part. Um, you know, little things we all took for granted. I think when everybody got home, we all just drove around in our car, just blocked <laughs> to say we could get in our car and do it. And, um, I think that's kind of the funny thing is when we were in Utah, you know, the most we could do was walk around the parking lot together in the hotel, you know, area because we couldn't leave. So um, for us, the only way to get fresh air outside the bubble was not to leave the bubble and to walk outside. So um, it was definitely hard mentally, I think. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think we ever got tired of each other necessarily, but I do think um, it was hard to kind of get a new environment in front of you, whether it was leaving the hotel or, um, you know, even just like sitting outside reading a book, it was really, really hard to just kind of be, you know, quote unquote, by yourself because you never were. And so um, I think that was definitely a challenge. But again, uh, I think really, really credit to our staff. They made sure we were kind of, you know, quote unquote, entertained running games or puzzling or, you know, silly team meetings that maybe we didn't want to do, but in the long run, really just kind of get distracted from just being a bit lonely at times. So um Definitely a unique experience. I uh, would definitely do it again, but it was definitely harder than I thought it was. The cool thing about Stanford women's soccer and, and the powerhouse program that it has been for, 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 for quite some time is that the Cardinal are well represented in the NWSL. Of course, Sophia Smith taken number one overall in the draft this past winter. She wasn't able to go. She was injured um, in this tournament, but, but no shortage of other uh, Stanford players um, in the league. How cool is it to see uh, some fellow Cardinal? And, and who are some of the folks that you've kept in touch with, even though they're playing on, on, on different teams now? Yeah, it's awesome. I think uh, the representation for is incredible. Uh, it doesn't surprise me. I hope the representation for years to come will always be there, and I'm sure it will. And Paul has done a, an amazing job of making sure everybody's ready to go to the next level at Stanford. So um, big credit to Paul and uh, Stanford women's soccer staff in general. Um, definitely kept in touch with Lola Bonta. She plays for Utah right now. And uh, I was actually roommates with her my freshman preseason. So she kind of taught me the ropes of Stanford women's soccer and, uh, you know, showed me all what college life is like. So I'm still keeping touch with her here and there. Andy Sullivan on Washington Spirit, her and I are great friends. And uh, that D.C. team is stacked with Stanford people with Tegan McGrady, Jordan DiBiase. So um, I was able to see some of them. And Avery Collins now is a rookie. And um, Alana Cook was able to come back from PSG and uh, play on loan with the rain, which was awesome. So um, I've kept in touch with all of them. They're all some of my closest friends to this day. And I'm super, super thankful that we all get to play this game and we're all able to come together in Utah and, you know, be together. I mean, usually on away trips, you have about 48 hours to kind of see someone's face. But this was, again, another unique opportunity where we were all stuck in this bubble for a month. So um, <laughs> it was great. I was so happy to see them. And uh, yeah, and also Tierna Davidson on Chicago. I was able yep. to see her as well. 
Yep, yep. yep, no doubt. Some great players, some great names, uh, certainly over the past few years that the U of I obviously had a chance to play with, and now you get to compete against them uh, here on this level. Uh, what were some of your favorite moments on the farm? Oh, gosh, on the farm back in the day. I have to say, you know, <laughs> going to uh, the Final Four my sophomore year after, I think, uh, beating Florida in the Elite Eight, that was a great game, and uh, that was a penalty shootout, so um that was a great moment obviously winning a Pac-12 championship there we've won a few of them so um obviously I'm missing the biggest one of them all is winning a national championship but uh after I graduated the team after me ended up winning one so that, and I actually was on campus for that so um it was really cool to at least see it from my own eyes as a fan and um see that and um every time Hideki and Marg and Paul have helped me train that's probably you know you know the best moment I think because they'll always you know they'll always hold me to the highest standard and whether I was at Stanford or I'm coming back as alumni they do their very best to help me in any way they can so I'm very fortunate for them yeah yeah I love dealing with Paul Ratcliffe calling uh, women's soccer games for the Pac-12 network just seems like a really cool really chill dude but he also knows which buttons to push um and when and I'm, I'm amazed you're calling back in the day it was like five years <laughs> ago I'm class of 97 I'm back in the day now come on <laughs> There you go. Exactly. <laughs> now, obviously, Stanford's coming off of a national championship from this past season. You got to take me through your experience of watching the Cardinal beat North Carolina in the College Cup final uh, last December, and especially take me through the penalty kick sequence as you watched it. What were some things that popped out at you throughout that entire match, and especially in that penalty kick sequence? Yeah, it was an amazing game, and uh, North Carolina obviously has a, you know, huge tradition of being a huge powerhouse in women's soccer, so um, even though we don't get to play them a lot, I do think there's kind of this, like, untold rivalry between Stanford and North Carolina um, whenever we play each other, so um, I knew it was going to be a great game, and uh, of course, going to the shootout, um, I think uh, Kiki put it in the, she had the final uh, mm -hmm. kick and uh, just banged in the back of the net, which was huge, and uh when I met her on her recruiting visit, she was just cool as a cucumber. So uh, I had no doubt that she was going to win it for the team. And um, I love shootouts. I think it's all the, you know, it's probably one of the best parts of soccer, in my opinion. Um, I love the pressure that comes with it. You really get to see who, as a player, really absorbs that and really shies away from it. And um, most of the time, if your team really absorbs that pressure and can uh, learn how to use it in a positive manner, they're going to come out on top, regardless of, you know, where you shoot the ball or how you save the ball. So um, it was awesome to see Stanford thrive in that moment. And uh, obviously, of course, I'm sure Paul didn't want it to go to PKs, but, um, you know, we got to make sure he's on his toes at some point. So uh, I thought it was, I thought it was a great tournament, great game and uh, very well played by UNC and Stanford and uh, obviously go Stanford. So super pumped we won. Yeah, and, and Katie Meyer becoming an overnight sensation of sorts. And look, I'm, I'm, I'll admit I'm guilty of this, you know, working so many Stanford women's soccer games over the years, and there's just so much firepower everywhere. I'll admit it. I kind of forget about the keepers. I'm kind of kicking myself a little bit about not really knowing Katie Meyer's story before that game. I'm sure you'd be super impressed with not only how she handled that night, but maybe how she handled how she's handled some things since then in dealing with it. Yeah, I uh, to be honest, I've never met her. Um, I've never crossed paths with her on an, on a visit. Um, I've only seen her play. So um, talk about someone who took the pressure and ran with it. I mean, she was so uh, enlightening in a way and 
you know, brought this passion with her that, you know, obviously some people didn't like, but at the end of the day, she got the job done and um, definitely, definitely helped Stanford secure that win. So um, what a fun player to watch. I mean, she'll be super entertaining for her years to come. And um, I can't wait to see what the next level brings for her because I know she can bring it. No doubt about that. Uh, I think you've kind of hinted at this here a little bit. I want to kind of go a little bit deeper into it. How much of being a keeper, how much of it is physical and how much of it is a mental game? Yeah, I think, I think a lot of it's mental. I mean, no one understands what position we're in unless you've actually played the position. Um, even commentators, you know, commentating how they know what we're going through and all this stuff, they don't. And uh, they never will because it really is you're kind of just on your island alone. And, um, you know, even through all the national camps that I've been to, the keepers always talk about that, how we're kind of alone and only will understand the struggles we're going through. Um, you know, I was watching the MLS tournament last night and uh, one of the keepers made a really, really poor mistake and drew a PK and the commentators were just, you know, going in on him. And I was just like, you know, it happens, right? Awful mistake, awful, awful situation where he drew a PK, but they ended up winning as the Portland Timbers. They ended up winning in a, the PK shootout anyway. So he kind of redeemed himself. But it's interesting hearing the commentators talk about his mistakes and his thought process when they didn't know, you know, they don't know. and They never will. So um, I do that, definitely think it's a huge mental side. And I think, um, you know, at Stanford, Hideki helped me so much with the mental side of my game and making sure I was comfortable and just confident in what I was doing in training. That way it relayed onto the field. And, you know, we're all going to make mistakes, you know, but the interesting part about our position is if we make a mistake, usually it leads to a goal, whereas field players, they can make all sorts of mistakes. And most of the time we're pretty much okay. So um, I think that's what I love about the position. I love the pressure that comes with it. And um, I'd much rather have the pressure on me than my teammates so that they can perform at their best and I'll do my best to have their back. So definitely mental side. And again, in the bubble performing where you can't really get away and have a moment to yourself, it's hard, especially when you're making mistakes in games as we all do. But um, it's definitely a mental side, but physically, of course, you got to have it a little bit, but um it's definitely a unique position for sure. Yeah, no doubt about that. I think it's really cool that both of your parents were Navy pilots, your mom a fighter pilot, and your dad uh, flew for the Blue Angels. And you have to have a certain mindset in order to do that job and to do it well. How much of their mindsets do you think maybe rubbed off on you, maybe even on and off the pitch perhaps? Yeah, you know, I always uh, kind of laughed to myself when they talked to me about performance because, you know, their job was kind of like life or death where mine is just letting a ball go in the back of the net and <laughs> I'll still be able to live to tell the tale. So, uh, yeah, it does make me chuckle a little bit, but um, they've definitely helped me so much on the mental side of things. And, um, you know, especially with my dad talking about the Blue Angels, he kind of relates that to national camps. And, you know, it's kind of like the most elite level you can get to in any realm. So, um Whenever I go into camp, you know, he always tells me a story about how him and his team, you know, dealt through adversity or, you know, had a game plan and executed it or didn't execute it and how they talk about debrief and how communication is of utmost importance at any level. So for me and being a leader with the Dash, I think my communication through the players and through the staff as well has really helped a lot. And um, I think it just it really showed this tournament how we all kind of stuck together and we all were on the same page when it came to executing a game plan. And even though it wasn't perfect, it didn't need to be because we got the job done. So.
hoisted the trophy at the very end. Couple last things here for you. Uh, can you describe how special this title is for you, uh, given what your team had to go through, given the Dash's struggles in making the playoffs as a franchise in the past and in, in the previous years, and, and given how hard Houston has been hit? It's been one of the hotbeds uh, for COVID nineteen throughout the course of this uh, pandemic, uh, being here stateside. Uh, can you describe how, just how special winning this title is? when you consider all of those variables as well? Yeah, we, you know, Houston definitely went through a lot. Um, you know, when we were, uh, I think we were in group training when the unfortunate death of George Floyd happened. And, um, you know, we were all able to go to the Houston March and um, celebrate his life, but also bring awareness to such an important, important thing going on in this world right now. So um, that was really hard on our whole team and our staff and, um, you know, definitely put us a lot of people in uncomfortable situations, but I think because of that, we were all able to grow so much together. And then um, just like you said, right after that COVID started rising again in Houston and our team doctors were all kind of really honest about, Hey, you know, don't really even go out to get groceries unless you absolutely need food. So that was kind of hard because we were almost kind of self quarantining ourselves at that point because we, you know, couldn't really go anywhere. And then, we were like, okay, we're going to go from a quarantine situation basically into a bubble, which is another quarantine situation. And we knew we were going to get tested a lot and we all hate getting tested. And, um, you know, going into the bubble, I think we were all like, oh, okay, great. You know, Houston's going to, the cases will go down, everything will kind of settle and we'll come back to a, you know, whole new city. But unfortunately the cases started to rise again and again. And, you know, we started hearing really bad things on the news that the hospitals are overflowing and, you know, our team doctors stayed in Houston, so we all know where they work, and we've all been in there to, you know, get physicals and get x-rays, and so for us to hear from them from afar that, you know, they're really struggling, I think for us, it just meant so much more than just us 24 players, you know, there was so much more to play for, I mean, we, we played for George Floyd, we played for the Houston hospitals, and all the Texas hospitals for that matter, and the fact that the Dash organization for the longest period was never really a winning culture for us to say this year coming in with a brand new team, um, James's second year having, you know, a really crystal clear game plan. I think for him, we really wanted to show him that we meant what we were talking about and that we really did want to perform well at this tournament. And even though, you know, it was seven games compared to the 24 we usually have in regular season because it was so unique, you know, I think it was so challenging and uh, it was very similar to a longer season because of all those challenges. So for us, it just meant the world. And, um, you know, we really mean it when we say, you know, it was much bigger than us 24 players. It really was for all the city of Houston and everybody really struggling here to hopefully bring them some sort of hope and happiness during this tough time. As we wrap this up, you got the, the, the celebration of the championship coming up on Thursday, I believe, as you'll have a chance to, to, to celebrate with some fans, obviously, with social distancing and, and all <laughs> those different factors as well. So maybe not quite the full-on parade, but hey, you still got the trophy. You're celebrating with the fans. I'm sure that'll be pretty special. After that, what's next for Jane Campbell? Yeah, you know, the prayer would be great. And uh, like you said, I think everybody will be, uh, I think in their cars, they'll be able to drive by. Right. So they'll be able to wave from afar. And yep. that'll be great. You know, I think uh, hopefully we'll have some good weather. It's been raining here the last few days. But um, it'll be great to see the fans from afar and um, be able to at least show them the trophy from afar and, you know, give them something to cheer about. But uh, after that, you know, I, I'm going to go see my parents in Atlanta for a little bit and just say hi to them and you know, come on back. I think we've got to be back in market at the end of August and 
Um, we're waiting to hear from the league if, you know, maybe we'll have some more exhibition games or maybe a couple round robin little, uh, I guess, exhibition round robins between the league or maybe we'll scrimmage, you know, a boys club team. But we're kind of waiting to hear. But I know we'll be training at some point, um, maybe in September. And um, after that, you know, it's hitting the ground running again, you know, knock on wood. Um, a U.S. camp will come calling and I can go to, into camp again. And um, But just staying ready and seeing what the future holds. Um, it's very unknown because of COVID and um, that's okay. Uh, it's not like we haven't done this before. So um, definitely a waiting game, but uh, yeah, just training and just trying to stay fit. Well, best of luck, best of health, and congratulations once again on, on hoisting the big trophy for the Houston Dash at the time uh, where, and, and in a city where I'm sure it's very, very necessary. One of the all-time best in Stanford women's soccer history and already making big moves in the NWSL. She's a champ, folks. She's Jane Campbell. Jane, thanks a bunch. Appreciate the time. I uh, hope to chat with you again soon. I don't know what took so long. <laughs> I know. I'm more than happy to talk to you whenever, and uh, thank you so, so much for having me on. Yeah, you bet. That was neat. That was neat. I uh, hope you enjoyed that chat with uh, Jane Campbell as much as I did, and kudos to her, and kudos to the Houston Dash. I mean, look, that, that, org that organization has struggled uh, since its time in the NWSL, and to, for, for them to put it together like that, and especially considering what's going on in Houston right now, Jane talked about that. That is, that's remarkable. That's remarkable. And uh, certainly an inspiring story um, in this day and age. And look, you know, you're seeing what's happening with the bubbles, NBA and the NHL with, with no positive tests recently. The MSL, the MLS rather has done, has done quite well too. Major League Baseball, are the Miami Marlins going to be able to field a team here by the end of the week? And look, the NWSL had its own little hiccup at the start. It wasn't 100% smooth, their bubble situation, as they went off to Utah. And an entire team had to stay behind the Orlando Pride with uh, numerous uh, players for, for that team uh, testing positive just a few hours before they were supposed to get on the plane and head out to Salt Lake and participate in the tournament. So Orlando had to stay home. So certainly not 100% smooth. But given how things could have gone and given how you're seeing things go with some of the leagues that are foregoing bubbles to this point, uh, NWSL really, once they got in competition for the most part, um, things could not have gone much more smoothly. Now, tough for the athletes. You heard Jane talk about some of the, uh, uh, not just some of the physical challenges, but the, but the mental hurdles that just being in that bubble uh, placed in front of her and, and the rest of the team and the rest of the league as well. But uh, great to catch up with Jane. And look, I, 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 I've been doing Pac-12 women's soccer play-by-play -play for the Pac-12 networks for, for the past five years. And I, I, don't really, I haven't really talked about Stanford keepers that much, at least not certainly during games, because they tend to not see that much action. Stanford's possessing the ball. They're, you know, they, they, they've got the ball. The defensive, uh, the back line uh, for Stanford is doing, the old, is doing fantastic work, shutting down whatever opportunities that their, their opponents tend to have. And the keeper barely touches the ball. So it, it's, it's very rare that we talk about Stanford keepers, or it's been very rare that we talk about Stanford keepers, um, at least certainly during my tenure as a play-by-play -play announcer with the Pac-12 Network. So they've kind of remained a bit of a mystery. I mean, Katerine Macario, we know about her. Kiki Pickett, I love watching her play. You know all about her, but we don't really know that much about the Stanford Keepers. Glad that Katie Myers is establishing herself now for the Cardinal. Lauren Rood on the squad as well. 
And glad that we got a chance to chat with Jane um, in that setting. Hope you enjoyed that chat as much as I did. Well, Wednesday of this week was supposed to be Pac-12 Football Media Day. We're all supposed to be down in Los Angeles getting ready for getting ready for the season ahead, rubbing shoulders with the coaches, a couple select players. Well, of course, along came the Rona and everything changed and the Pac-12 finally officially put the kibosh on uh, Pac-12 Media Days uh, in the virtual sense um, early last week. So I figured... Why not have our own little media day and celebrate media day the TreeCast way with a Stanford football media roundtable? And I've got a couple of guys who fit the bill better than anybody else. They cover the Cardinal on a daily basis better than anybody else. Look, I just drop in every time, you know, every week or so, but these guys are on it every single day. Introducing first up, from cardinalsportsreport.com, the Stanford arm of the Rivals website, and always a pleasure. This is his third appearance on the TreeCast. How about this, Jacob Rayburn, member, uh, the, the first member of our roundtable. Jacob, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Three-time guest, two-time surprise guest. I would have thought after the first time you just dropped me, Troy. <laughs> no, the, the, you know, you, you, you pass the first test and you keep passing all the tests and checking all the boxes as we go along. Jacob Rayburn, part of our roundtable, and of course, the one and only from thebootleg.com, the Stanford arm of 24-7 sports, RJ Abadia in the house. RJ, how you doing, man? I'm great. I just want to thank you for enticing me into what I'm sure is a contractually violating um, <laughs> appearance. And uh, let's, uh, let's just enjoy it. Ah, contracts. I mean, come on. There are no rules these days. We're just doing our own thing, right? We just Not do whatever world, we want. <laughs> Not in the world of Rona, no. <laughs> All right, let's, let's, let's start here. And if I'm not sure, maybe you guys mirror how, how my voyage has been throughout the past what, four and a half months or so now with just my confidence level in, in things being pulled off and things starting on time and things finishing on time, uh, probably at my highest uh, confidence point personally around mid-May. And then everything started to going to heck with, with all the spikes that we started to see around the country, uh, especially in mid-June. And things just have not gotten much better uh, since that point on. RJ, let me start with you. Uh, given how things seem to be trending right now, you know, unfortunately, some of the headlines that we've seen with Major League Baseball, some of the things, the positive news that we've seen with some bubble scenarios with, with Major League Soccer, the NWSL, you know, NBA and NHL seem to be off, off to good starts as of right now anyway. How are you feeling, RJ, about things right now? Um, I think I probably have had less fluctuation than what you described over the course of all of this. Um, I think my standing answer has been, I am extremely confident that both college and the NFL are going to get to game one. Um, I'm also extremely confident that neither one of them is going to come anywhere near completing a season. Um, and that's, I think that's been the way I, for the duration of the, of the shutdown. Uh, and I think to a large extent, whether it's the high school, the college, or the NFL level, I think there's just been a lot of can kicking. Um, I think that's essentially what the Pac-12 has done, maybe wisely, maybe not wisely, but I think that's essentially what's going on. I think that's what college football is doing right now to the point where now it's, it's can kicking to next week or 
three days from now or two weeks from now or as long as we can wait. But um, yeah, I mean, that's basically where I'm coming out. I haven't seen any of these leagues or any of these sports tie their decisions to concrete data and facts that would suggest that proceeding and having seasons and practices is certainly what they can and should be doing. So, you know, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And the PAC 12 supposedly going to uh, potentially announce things on Friday, as far as how they expect to, uh, to, to approach their fall sports schedule, not just football, football obviously, obviously drives the bus, but, but all the other fall sports as well. Jacob, how are you feeling about things right now? Very similarly to uh, how RJ just described it. I, I absolutely agree that, um, the economics are going to make it so that we have game one. We have game one for everybody. We're going to try and, you know, kind of damn the torpedoes approach where whether or not the facts actually back up that we should be doing it, I think it's going to happen where we at least try both in college level and NFL. Um, everyone seems to just kind of be operating on kind of the hope that something outside of their control changes to make what they want to do possible and i think that the idea of having a spring season is really the only thing that's kind of made sense to me because if you're really gonna like try to play a delaying game to see what can change i don't see what the band-aids are really going to accomplish i think you have to really push it back and and hope that that does something yeah, it's interesting because, you know, you want football. RJ, you want football too. I want football as well. We all, if you're listening to this podcast and listening to and checking out this show, chances are pretty good that you want to see football. But I'm sure that we all also want the health and the safety, not just for the student athletes, but, you know, it's more than the student athletes. It's everyone involved, the coaches, the staff members, the folks who actually have to show up uh, all the stadiums, be with the team in practice. We also want the health and safety there for, for everyone involved. But, but those two things, at least as of right now anyway, seem to be kind of completely at odds with each other. Uh, Jacob, I'll start with you here. Are, are you guys having sometimes – that, that, that same kind of trouble kind of re reconciling both of those things here as, we, as we've gone along here? A little bit, but I would say that for the most part, my thinking has been it's either safe to play football and to watch football in person or it's not. Everyone trying to come up with little scenarios of like only 20% of the stadium or, um, you know, only conference games as if we all play regionally still and um, these attempts at like doing political cover, which aren't really addressing the safety issues just so we can play football has been kind of uncomfortable to watch. Um, so that's what I, I come back to. Either it's safe for you to play normal football or it's not, in which case we don't play. Yeah. Yeah. RJ, your thoughts? Yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's two things. I think it's really interesting that, now as we're pushing up against a real timetable for the fall that the pac-12 has divorced itself from one of their earliest sentiments which was if it's not safe for students to be on campus as students it's not safe to play sports they've essentially just deleted that <laughs> from their thought process yeah. and the, the justification for it was sketchy at best i would say in terms of why they say that they've pivoted on that in that regard. The other thing that is, 
you know, self-evident, but I think it's not being discussed is, you know, all these schools, well, the ones who are successfully practicing or having OTAs or whatever, you know, patting themselves on the back for these low Corona cases. The one thing that none of them are doing is playing football. Mm -hmm. And I don't see how you're going to negotiate the realities of playing football seriously with what we know about how this virus spreads and the effect that it has. It just doesn't seem realistic. And you can look at baseball who has great resources, far fewer teams to manage. They're playing in empty stadiums mm -hmm. and a little bit they, more social distancing. <laughs> they, absolutely. The sport itself lends itself far more to a social distance reality than football does. And they have not been able to get out of the first week, you know? And so I just, I think, you know, if you're looking at the data and, and you're looking at what doctors are telling you, that's fine up until a point. But the reality is we don't have a true sample of what this is going to be like until people start playing football. And I don't think that playing football has, that there's any evidence to suggest that that's going to keep things at an equilibrium or better, right? It's not going to improve Corona cases right. when tens of thousands of people start playing football. So I'm just, I'm just not sure like what we're talking about at this point. Well, or even before that, you can add to the fact, not just when, when kids start playing football, you know, what are gonna what's gonna happen to the cases then, but when kids start reporting to campus and not just the student athletes, but everyone, because look, let's face it, you know, the, the Arizona schools right now, they plan on having in-person teaching. Um, Washington State seems pretty confident about their ability. Last time I checked to be able to pull off uh, in-person teaching as well. So, you know, you get kids on campus, you know, it, 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 it adds a completely an entirely different dynamic that could completely and entirely change. And Arizona hasn't been that great on this anyway over the past <laughs> few weeks. You know, that could completely change um, a, a lot of things here too. Um, let, let's, let's talk about Stanford and, and switch gears here a little bit. Stanford specifically as it tries to get back to where the, pro, where, where the program has been over the course of the past decade and what a decade it has been. And, you know, I was disappointed. I'm sure y'all were too. And I was disappointed that Stanford wasn't able to make it to a bowl last year. But overall, I was like, look, you know what? I'm fine with it, with all the injuries and maybe with everything else. This was a good chance for the program to maybe step back a little bit and, and, and get afresh. I'll ask both of you guys this, but I want to start with Jacob here. Uh, besides staying healthy, if you were David Shaw, besides staying healthy, what would have been at the top a number one on your list of things to do this past off season? What would have been number one? Oh, geez. <laughs> to pick one. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a lengthy list, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. I would say a, a um, kind of a full, very blunt autopsy into why the defense has regressed as much as it has since the last Rose Bowl team and what steps need to be taken to reverse that trend. Um, yeah, they, they recruit uh, on paper, they recruit better on offense than they do on defense. And that gap's actually been widening. Um, and also it's, it's just apparent in the stats, everything from what you can read on pro football focus, if you put stock into them, 
to just the basic numbers, uh, the defense needs to be turned around. So I would have expected my number one to be is what's happening and how do we stop it? RJ, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it depends on how micro you want to get. I mean, as far as a singular <laughs> act, I'm pretty sure Jacob and anyone who read me for the past six months would probably know the number one thing I wanted Stanford to do that they failed to do. And we're not going to get into that totally, but I would kind of agree with Jacob, but I would just expand it to kind of an evaluation of recruiting as a whole mm -hmm. and the idea. And, and to a certain extent, there have been little hints that perhaps it's happened. Um, you know, I talked to, to Vita Pritchard and he kind of was willing to acknowledge that certain things definitely needed to be reevaluated and looked at. But for me, to answer your question most directly, I would just say a truly honest self-assessment about how they recruit and an evaluation of the job that they've done um, would have been my number one because I don't, I think Jacob and I both agree and I think kind of everyone agrees whether you want to fix the defense or the offense or the whatever, the number one thing you got to do is get yourself some talent. And I think J Jacob's hundred percent, right. The gap in recruiting in these classes on the sides of the ball is noticeable. Yeah. I was going to ask you guys about that because look, you guys are way more into the recruiting side of things uh, than I am. And I'm certainly grateful for it. Uh, RJ, what, what, what have the early returns on recruiting been uh, so far in, in your estimation? Well, I mean, again, on the whole, it's not a pretty picture right now. If you talk about the fact that they've got six commitments in the 21 class, the best case scenario, if you look at the highest ranked offers that are still in any way plausibly still in play, still leaves them with anywhere from eight to 10 spots that need to be filled and you'd want them to be filled with quality players. I don't know that there are eight to 10 elite guys after the four or five, they're still trying to get that are out there. Mm -hmm. um, so you have to acknowledge, yes, there is a respectable ceiling left for this class, but realistically, I think you're, you're being very optimistic if you're expecting that, that, that for them to hit their ceiling in terms of what's available in this class. Um, I will say the biggest position need, in my opinion, was safety. And they've certainly addressed that in bulk. And I think that's important and I think it's relevant and it should be acknowledged. Um, but overall, um, they've got work to do and I think they've got not a lot of time to do it. Lance Anderson on line one for you there, RJ. And no, oh, by the way, Stanford's trying to do all this recruiting in the midst of, of a global pandemic. It, it's going to be interesting to see what, 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 uh, what, what Stanford and how they perform going forward here, Jacob. It's going to be interesting to see uh, how they're able to come away with all this. Yeah, and I mean, I, I agree with a lot of what RJ had to say. And I would, as far as the effects of COVID, um, I know it's the opinion of some people at Stanford that really no one else has been hit harder by COVID in terms of making recruiting difficult. Um, and I can certainly buy into that to a point because the way Stanford's recruiting process under Shaw is set up leans heavily, and I cannot emphasize that word enough, on doing enough relationship building that you convince a kid to visit campus and, and that's considered to be the big checkmate move. 
of let him talk to professors, the current guys, see everything in person, and then the kid knows whether or not he's, you know, the right fit. Oh, 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 oh hey, look, here's Condoleezza Rice. Here she exactly. is. Pretty involved in the program, too. It's um, compared to the programs that spend a kind of nauseating amount of money to make their stuff really flashy on visits and everything. Stanford manages to put together really impressive visits, mostly just because of the, the people, the quality of the people on campus. Not having that obviously hurts a lot. Uh, and it's, what it's done is, is it made the weakest part of their recruiting strategy have to take lead, which is long distance relationship building, which is the fact that they do not have the recruiting resources of everyone else. They do not have a staff that's built to be a bunch of recruiting fanatics um, where you have staffs like Oregon, for example, where that is a main focus of why certain people get hired is, is just that. Um, that's not Stanford's model under Shaw. And when you're winning and going to Rose Bowls and when you can have visits and everything like that, his model had, uh, really anywhere from just good to great results. Um, last few years, that model has really been tested. RJ, let me start with you on, the, on this is, you know, whenever Stanford takes the football field, and we hope it's sooner rather than later and more responsibly rather than not, what are you looking forward to seeing most when Stanford retakes the field? Well, if it happens within the context of a 2020 season, I think the last dance for the last really kind of super elite class that Stanford had, um, you know, Davis Mills at quarterback, Walker Little and Foster Sorrell bookending the offensive line and more wide receiver talent than I think they have ever had. Mm -hmm. In terms of quantity, you know, I don't think there's a Troy Walters level performer maybe right. coming into this season, but I also don't think there has ever been five, six dudes who you can throw out there who are a legit problem for people to cover. Um, so I think that would have that that was certainly the thing I was expecting to drive Stanford's turnaround to the extent that it happened this season. Um, and I think that would have been the top of the, of the wish list because I think once you turn the corner on this class and this group, um, you're looking at a very, very different reality um, for this program, at least in the short run. Yeah, yeah, I can't wait to see what these receivers can do. And, you know, I, I, you know, they're certainly the deepest and certainly the most talented, I think, since you maybe got to go back to Troy Walters and to Ronnie Pitts and Dave Davis, the crew uh, that helped lead Stanford to that Rose Bowl in the 99 season. Outside of that, I think this, uh, this receiver class far and away uh, the best that Stanford has fielded in quite a long time, maybe ever. Jacob, what excites you about the season ahead? Uh Again, assuming it's as RJ described and it's this group, it's, I mean, really it's the same thing. I don't know how anyone can look at this roster and not draw almost exactly the same conclusion about what needs to lead the way to wins on Saturday. It's the passing game and a, certainly a resurgence of the run game, which we have yet to see what it actually would look like under Kevin Carberry. 
I think we can all agree that what's happened the past two seasons is in no way how we should evaluate Carberry as a run game coordinator. Um, and it's it, it, the receivers, it's obvious. Then you throw in the fact that the running backs have a lot of talent as pass catchers. It's a really versatile group. It seems to have actually been a very conscious decision by the staff to go out for those kind of guys, which isn't to say they haven't also tried to get quote unquote power guys, but they've just worked it out where it's a room of almost entirely running backs slash receivers. Um, it's a group that, that should be fun to watch with Davis Mills throwing the ball around. Um, and if I had to give like one little note about what else I'd want to uh, expect to see or want to see, um, it's really to just um, unleash the defense as much as possible in terms of being aggressive. I think that at times they try to cover some of their weaknesses by actually kind of playing back a bit and trying to do a bend but don't break, even though I know Lance just absolutely hates that phrase. Um, but yeah, throw the rock and, and let loose. Yeah, uh, and, and I'm really looking forward to, to, to seeing how that shakes out, um, uh, how that shakes out myself. Um, biggest area, Jacob, of on-field concern for you? Is it the defense? Is it somewhere else? So what, what's your biggest area of on-field concern right now? Um, it, it, in my, it, it's, I think it's a tie between defensive line and safety. Yeah. Um, defensive line kind of se seems to have more guys to provide really good answers. Safety, I think, um, re really needs help. Uh, it's got good guys, but guys who are, are, are limited compared to who used to be Roman back there. Um, so that's, that's my number one position concern is safety. And that certainly seems to have been something that we've seen borne out over the last uh, couple of years, especially some guys who've been converted from cornerback to safety. And you talk in the middle, in the middle of the season, it's like, well, you know, I'm still getting my angles down. You're like, oh, geez, oh, no. <laughs> RJ, your biggest area of on-field concern right now. Yeah, I mean, I think Jacob hit the two. I'd say if I was forced for a tiebreaker, I would say defensive line just because I feel like just in principle, you're going to get farther with a dominant defensive line and a suspect secondary than you are with vice versa. Mm -hmm. um, and if you're looking for something aside from what Jacob said, I would actually say quarterback depth. Um, every optimistic model for this season is predicated on Davis Mills playing 12 games. If he does not, um, I don't think there is an optimistic model for this team this season. And there's a non-zero chance. Let's be honest here. There's a non-zero chance of, of that happening. We all unfortunately know what Davis Mills' injury history has been um, over the years. You know, hobbled his way through last year. Barely made it through to the end um, of last year. So uh, I'm sure it's one of those things, RJ, where you're hoping you're wrong here. But you know what? I wouldn't be honestly surprised if, if that kind of didn't quite shake out uh, the way that a lot of Stanford fans uh, perhaps maybe hoped.
Kind of staying along those lines, and Jacob, I'll start with you here on this. Um, I'm not ruling out Stanford perhaps contending in the Pac-12, maybe making a push for a conference championship, a division title. I'm not necessarily ruling it out. I don't think it's that large of a shot. Had Phil Steele on the show last week, and he said, hey, 20 to 25 percent. And I was like, whoa, okay. All right, cool, Phil. You do you. You run with it. Uh, how large of a chance, Jacob, are you giving Stanford as of right now to being a Pac-12 contender at this point? Um, I don't know if I can match Phil uh, with his <laughs> <laughs> optimism, but um, I mean, really, it's it's kind of what we've been talking about. Where if if they um, score enough touchdowns, which I know sounds dumb because that's kind of the point, but if yeah, if the offense produces the way we expect, and it's because Davis Mills plays 12 games and they have what would be called a gunslinger's chance in almost every game that they're going to play, it's a brutal road schedule, um, and that's not helpful. But, yeah, I give them a, a, a shot at, at going at the Pac-12 North. But not going 20 25% like Phil? <laughs> I'll, I'll hit 15%. I'll, I'll, <laughs> there you go. RJ, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably right. I mean, my attitude is all things being equal with no knowledge of, of how it actually is going to play out. If Davis Mills plays 12 games, I expect him to win eight. You know, in a normal, if you run 100 simulations, I think most of those simulations come out with like eight wins, give or take one or two. Um, the interesting thing is, again, what reality are we talking about? Because I think Jacob's point about this being the tough road year is okay. absolutely relevant. But I would also argue if no one's going to be in the stadiums, <laughs> sure, sure, that changes how you view the tough road year, right? So, um, so I don't know. I, I think, again, I think there's a, there's a ceiling that if things go right, like we said, um, they can win eight games. I mean, for me – the larger point with last season and this season is I would actually argue against evaluating just those data points. In other words, my concern about Stanford football is rooted in things that I've seen over the last multiple seasons. And so anyone who says, well, no, they went four and eight, and that's the reason I'm concerned, I would push back against that because of the injuries of last year. And specifically, and I would also argue anyone who watches them this year, say, win eight or nine games and says, well, the program's fixed. We're good now. I would argue against that as well. It's really more about what they've been doing over the last five years that is kind of driving my expectations and the way I look at them. Yeah, it brings us back to, you know, what was on David Shaw's off-season to-do list, maybe addressing some of the things and tightening up some of the things um, that, that needed to be evaluated and perhaps re-evaluated uh, to make sure that 2019 doesn't happen again for a long, long time. And by the way, fellas, if Stanford's playing 12 football games, I'm happy. In, in any way, shape, or form, because I'm not sure that we're going to get anything more than six or seven at this point. So playing 12 games this year, I'm, I'm definitely cool with that. All right, let, let's go to lightning round here. And I, I, I should probably call this the knee-jerk round here. I, I've got five different categories here. I'll ask each of you for your thoughts, and I'll chime in with mine. Just, just your knee-jerk quick reaction, a sentence or two, uh, with, with your explanation here as well. Uh, RJ, let me start with you. Your key offensive player. 
Davis Mills for I refer you to just the last 20 minutes of this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Jacob Walker little. Yeah. Yeah. You could argue he was the key offensive player last year too, especially based on how things went for the offensive line uh, for the remainder of the year. And I'm kind of thinking of along your lines there a little bit, Jacob, I'm, I'm going to go maybe a little bit out of left field, Drew Dahlman, you know, a center who, you know, is kind of starting to get some of the press, kind of starting to get some of the notice outside the program that, look, you know, you and I, you know, and, and, and RJ was our eavesdropping as well. You know, we all, we all saw David Shaw's weekly press conferences about he was you know, being Drew Dahlman's number one hype man. You need the center in, in, in this scheme. You need to be strong up front. You need to, you need a center in particular. And if, if, if he doesn't go the whole way, I think that could certainly uh, be a, a bad harbinger for Stanford going forward. All right. Key defensive player, Jacob. Thomas Booker, Uh, he needs to be what they hope he is because there aren't too many other options. RJ? I would agree, but just for variation, I'm going to throw in uh, Ricky Miezan because I expect that position group by far to be the most improved on the defense this year, and I think he's a big part of that. Yeah, yep. hopeful, hopeful improvement and hopeful uh, better health for the inside linebackers as well. Uncle Dalen Wade Perry, you know, you need that guy in the middle to kind of shore things up there a little bit. You know, I mean, obviously, Paulson Adebo in the secondary, he can do great things. Thomas Booker, I'm right there with you, RJ. I think he could potentially uh, be poised for a big-time breakout season. But Uncle, Uncle Dalen Wade Perry, a little bit off the grid there. Uh, speaking of breakout seasons, uh, RJ, who in your mind is potentially breakout season bound this year? Um, it's a tough tiebreaker for me. It's two wide receivers, one of which I have a very, very personal bias because he attended the greatest high school of all time. Oh, Midwest City High School, Midwest City, Oklahoma? Not quite. A little to the West. But I I really like, I really like where Michael Wilson is coming to this year. But I have Mm -hmm. to say, I also really like where Simi Fajoko is. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, Maybe a little unfair to expect Simi to hold on to that 24-yard per catch average, but <laughs> um, I, I really think one, if not both of those guys, is going to do big things this year. Mike Gundy went to Midwest City High School. He's kind of taken our points down, I think, a little bit over the last few months, certainly. Uh, Jacob, who, style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jacob, who's a voice for a breakout season in your mind? Austin Jones. Mm. A very talented young man. Uh, I don't think he's going to be – I don't think he's going to really distance himself too much from Nathaniel Pete as a number one running back, but I think that's also because they really like uh, Nate. Uh, but I think Austin's poised to be quite good. Yeah, we saw flashes. We saw flashes. Mine's Thomas Booker. I kind of hinted at that a little bit earlier, but I'll go with uh, I'll go with Thomas Booker, whom, as I mentioned before, I'm either going to be working for him or voting for him, or perhaps both <laughs> at some point before it's all said and done. Um, we still don't know the schedule as we speak. Uh, Pac-12 potentially going to announce that this upcoming Friday. But, Jacob, the scariest opponent for you for Stanford this upcoming year? Oh, Lordy. Um... <laughs> there's a number of ways to look at that. The scariest opponent. Um, all right. I'm going to go with Cal because I think that there's a chance that Cal shows it's moving past Stanford and that it's going to open up some ground. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. It would, I would hate to see that, but it, it makes sense as we speak right now here in late July. RJ, who you got? 
I, I think Cal would be a good choice. I'm just going to go Oregon just because I think they are strong at the line of scrimmage. I think they're the strongest team at the line of scrimmage. And um, Stanford used to be that. And they're not as of right now. And I want to see how they, how they stack up now coming back into the season with that offensive line and with the defensive line who we're not sure about. So, yeah, I'm going to say Oregon. Yeah, Penny Sewell, pretty much a top five lock in the NFL draft if they were to hold that thing tomorrow. Uh, I'm, I'm going to take the easy way out in some senses and kind of go off the grid here, here a little bit. Stanford's scariest opponent, it's got to be Verona. Right? I mean, it's probably the quickest, nice. fastest, most penetrative opponent yeah. that Stanford's going to face all year long and the most unpredictable, too. If Stanford can't get a handle on that, there's not a whole hell of a lot else that they can do. Uh, final knee-jerk round uh, question for you, and I think, RJ, you hinted at this a little, a little bit, and I'll start with you here on this. Over-under on Stanford winning two-thirds of its games. Over-under or even push? Uh I think push. I think if we're, again, if we're removing the asterisk of the Rona, if we're moving, if we're ensuring that Davis Mills is there for 12 games or 10 or 11 at least, uh, yeah, I think eight is probably the most reasonable looking at the schedule. So I guess push. Okay. Jacob? Uh, yeah. If, if we attach the same givens, I would say um, push with uh, over being a smidge more likely than under, but push. Okay. I'm with you. I'm with both right there. Push. <laughs> we're, we're all pushing. That's all we can do these days, right? <laughs> we're all pushing and hopefully we are pushing forward towards what we hope will be a healthy Stanford football season, not just for the student athletes and the staff, but for everyone who follows and everyone who covers the Cardinal and two of the very best Joining us on our Stanford football media roundtable, RJ Abadia from thebootleg.com and uh, Jacob Rabin from cardinalsportsreport.com. Read their stuff. It is fantastic work. Uh, support Stanford media any way you can. Stanford Daily as well. I throw them in the mix too. Um, you know, support Cardinal coverage no matter which way you can get it. Fellas, this was fun. I wish we were all doing this in person and looking at each other face-to-face -face instead of meeting up on Zoom. Um, confident and hopeful that we can all get there and all be hanging around together at the exact same time and uh, either celebrating some things or walking away off the field and going, damn, what, the, what, what just happened there? We've, all, we've <laughs> both been there over the past few years. But, fellas, thanks a bunch. Looking forward to our next chance to uh, cross paths and uh, be together in person. Most of all, stay healthy. Keep up the fantastic work. And, uh, fellas, we'll, we'll see you again soon. Thanks, All right. Troy. Thanks, Troy. Yeah, that was fun. Good to see the guys. And I uh, hope we can uh, get together in person soon and you go back to what we love doing, and that's covering Stanford, uh, Stanford sports and covering Stanford football live and in person. And, and, and you just heard me mention it there. Look, support Stanford journalism. Support it, especially on the local level. Um, with RJ and, and Jacob and their work. Also, shout out to Albert Thomas, who does a, a, does a fantastic job of uh, covering things uh, with the bootleg as well. And, and look, there aren't that many of us anymore. I remember when I started with covering Stanford sports back in 93, you know, Bill Walsh's weekly media press conferences, those weekly luncheons, you know, they were pretty well attended. 
you know, there are, there are at least 20, 25 folks in the room covering those things every single week. And I don't think it was just because MacArthur Park was catering those things back in the day. You know, Tyrone Willingham's press conferences uh, on a weekly basis were, were pretty well attended, too. Not so much now. I mean, during, during the course of last, last year, certainly, you know, I mean, myself, uh, Jacob, and, and Albert Thomas, I just mentioned, uh, the three of us were pretty much the stalwart attendees of David Shaw's uh, weekly uh, media, media press conferences. So there aren't too many of us anymore, especially with Tom Fitzgerald uh, retiring from the San Francisco Chronicle before the uh, 2019 season began. So support Stanford journalism. Support the products that we all put out uh, there aren't that many of us. You know, I'm the, I think I'm the only one who does this on the, on the podcast space. Uh, Jacob and RJ do what they do, and, and Albert, they do what they do uh, on the internet space. Stanford Daily, I've been very impressed with what they've done in covering uh, the Cardinal, uh, specifically over the last year or so. So support Stanford journalism. And, you know, that, that roundtable, I, I think you kind of, you know, you, you heard a little bit of hope. You heard a little bit of optimism. And, and you heard some, some reason to, to think that, that the best case scenarios are, are within reach. But also, I think you heard a lot of reality, too. And I think that kind of sums up uh, where we are overall, not just with Stanford football, but with all the things that are, that are surrounding trying to return to play and with a lot of the things that are, that are surrounding all of us away from sports right now. So that is, it is what it is. You know, unfortunately, we all can be gathering right now down in L.A., down in Hollywood, uh, taking in all the sights and sounds of, of Pac-12 uh, Media Day. Uh, not still not sure if there is going to be a Pac-12 Football Media Day this year. It's been merely postponed to when we still don't know. As I say this, but good to see the guys, and um, good to see, good to good to hear some of their thoughts on what could possibly be ahead if and when Stanford football takes the field. Your responses, your reactions are certainly welcome via Twitter. Hashtag TreeCast. Always appreciate those. It's been fun. I kind of did, did a couple of different things on this week's show. Hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And looking forward to whatever next week's program may bring. Special thanks once again to our guests. Houston Dash. Oh, I'm sorry. <clears throat> let, me, let me rephrase that. NWSL champion Houston Dash goalkeeper. Jane Campbell and Jake Rayburn, Jacob Rayburn from uh, CardinalSportsReport.com and RJ Abadia from TheBootleg.com. Biggest thanks as always goes out to you for joining us and being a part of the show. Don't drink and drive. If you do, you're the dumbest person on the planet and just as dumb as the person who refuses to wear a mask. Mask it or casket. Talk to you next week. Thanks for being with us here on the TreeCast with Troy Clarity. Presented by the Believe Podcast Network. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done.